You're listening to a message from Micaiah Ermler, lead pastor of Southridge Church in San Jose, California. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I'm going to keep marching on. When are we going to have a church that rises up full of faith, with full hearts, with eyes that are on Jesus? Say, guess what? I'm not afraid of anything. Why? Because I'm now fearless. I'm fearless because God is with me. He is in me and he is for me. Calvary proves that Jesus is for me. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we hope you will stay connected with Southridge by liking us on Facebook or by following us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for the handle at Southridge Now and click the follow button so you can receive uplifting, encouraging content right in your feed. Thanks again for listening. And now, here is Pastor Micaiah. We're in a series entitled, What Would Jesus Undo? And over the last five weeks, we've been looking at things that Jesus would undo. And we said that Jesus would undo the confusion about commitment. Because many times today, people are confused at what discipleship looks like. And it's a word we don't often use, that Jesus told us that if we're going to be his followers, to take up his cross and to follow him. And so we talked about how people are confused about uh, uh, commitment. We also talked about handling hypocrisy. We also looked at spiritual blindness. Last week, we looked at uh, worship and how there's empty worship. And so we talked about the priority of worshiping God, that life is worship worship, uh, what other, what, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do is worship to God. And so this week we're going to look at this fifth week. We're going to look at Jesus would undo unbelief. And I want to look at Mark chapter number nine as we kind of work a little bit this morning. I hope you're ready to work a little bit and study God's word. I hope you don't mind coming and uh, uh, saying, you know what? I want to take some good notes. And if you don't have a place to take notes, we have our life journals. Go get those on the back. Uh, pastor's discount. They're normally five bucks, but you get my discount, which is 10% off. So they're $4.90, my big fat whopping discount. You get to use that. God bless you. And uh, they just don't give me much bigger of a discount. Man, I don't know what I got to do to get a bigger discount, but that's all they give me. So uh, get, a, get a life journal, take some notes because we say note takers are history makers. There we go. I say it every week and we're finally getting it because I believe God's going to use those notes to impact you. I love going uh, to my wife's side of the bed. She's got a little dresser and in that dresser is all her journals and I get to spy on her and I get to see what she's learning from my messages. And some weeks I'm like, Nothing. You, you got nothing. She's like, well, preach a better sermon. Maybe I'll get something. Ouch. Your wife can really know how to get you, right? Just kind of that burn, you know? And I was like, mm-hmm, that's the motivation I needed. I said, um, I'm going to go study harder and work on something. And uh, so every Sunday, I always look for her notes. And uh, so I just make sure, man, okay, I need to get that in. But uh, take notes. We're in Mark chapter number nine. But before we get there, we're going to be talking about unbelief and faith and how it affects us. Years ago, I started full-time ministry in 2007. I was working at a church on East Side San Jose. And uh, this church, we would use what, uh, buses to pick up kids and, and adults and anybody that needed a ride to church. And we would, we would get up early on a Sunday morning, and we'd load up the buses, and we'd pick up kids and families. We'd take them to church. And, and we would use bribes, all right? I know you're not supposed to bribe people to go to church, but we'd use bribes. These are kids. So we'd have donut days. We would do hot Cheeto days. We would do goldfish Sunday so everybody who rode the bus 
us got a goldfish. And then we would tell them if we hit a numeric barrier, then I'd make one of my workers swallow a goldfish, you know, just all kinds of E. coli and bacteria. is all bad, but you chase it down with some Tabasco sauce, and you're all right, okay? And you just swallow it. Don't chew it. That's gross. Don't chew it. You just swallow. And so we would do these special days. Well, we would run these bus routes, and we would go into kind of some of the neighborhoods that it was a little bit rougher, a little bit uh, a place you wouldn't want to be seen at night. Some of you are like, that's my neighborhood. I live there. And, uh, you know, and uh, so uh, that, that, that's where we would go with these buses, and we'd pick up people and bring them to church. And we saw uh, lots of people saved, and lots of people would come to church. And, and I really loved it, and I enjoyed it. And I met two uh, boys. They were just a lot of fun. They were named Duke and Alex, two Vietnamese boys. And when I met them, they were about four and five years old, and they didn't speak English. And they would jump on our bus, and they just started speaking Vietnamese. And I just looked at them, and I just nodded, and I didn't have a clue what they were saying. I was just like, I didn't have a clue. When they said pho, I knew what pho was. I was like, yeah, let's do that. I can, we can go there. And, uh, you know, and so they would ride the bus, and, man, uh, they were just starting school, so they were just starting to learn English and everything. They were just the most energetic kids, and uh, they would escape from their class. I don't know about you. You used to grow up in, I grew up in the days of Sunday school. So you get to church an hour before church started and you'd go to Sunday school and you would sit in a class and then the teacher might have flannel graph. How many remember flannel graph? Come on. That's when church was real. Okay. Flannel graph. And you would have these, uh, uh, little, 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 uh, sticker charts where if you memorize that verse, you'd get a gold star and everything you want to fill up your sticker chart. That's right. We got people that remember the sticker charts and that's how we memorize God's word. And I think it might help if we got back to sticker charts for all of us, you know, I just put them on the back, just line the sticker charts. You know, I bet you would work. Even for us, you know, and uh, sometimes the teacher would get the scratch and sniff stickers and you're like, ooh, yeah, yeah. And that was Sunday school. So these kids, they would escape from their Sunday school classes and I'd have to chase them around and everything. And it was really bad. Uh, their hygiene wasn't the best. You say, why? Because I found them just in front of the doors of the church, just going to the bathroom on the bushes. You know, they're just, that was a normal thing for them. We just energetic boys, you know? And so, oh, you know, we would crowd them in. And, and over the years I got to work at that ministry, I just saw those boys just grow up. And we had a good friendship and everything. And uh, years later, right before I left that ministry, I was teaching on the subject of faith. And I was teaching on unbelief. And so I called up Duke and I said, Duke, come up here and help me with my illustration today. And so he stood up on the platform on the edge and I, I put him on the edge and I said, Duke, I'm going to blindfold you. Okay. You okay with that? He said, yeah, I'm okay. So I put a blindfold around him. I said, Duke, we're going to talk about faith and Duke, we're going to talk about belief. And I'm going to ask you to fall backwards. And all of a sudden, he wished he wouldn't have volunteered for this illustration. But he just stayed there and everything. I was like, you just hang out right here. And I, and I got off the platform, and I walked down. I said, Duke, do you trust me? And Duke, with the blindfold on, he nodded his head. And I was like, Duke, do you believe I wouldn't let anything bad happen to you? And he nodded his head. And I was like, Duke, are you sure you believe and you trust? He nodded his head. And then I kept talking to Duke. But as I was talking to Duke with the microphone, I started to walk away from Duke. I said, Duke, are you sure you still trust me? And Duke kept nodding his head. And I was like, Duke, do you believe that I make sure you won't fall? And he kept nodding his head as I'm walking farther and farther away. I was like, Duke, are you sure you still believe me? Are you positive? And I went all the way to the back of the room and I said, Duke, do you trust that I won't let you get hurt? And at that moment, Duke was quivering. You could see him shaking, you know, a 10 year old boy just shaking. And I said, Duke, fall back. And he didn't even hesitate. He just fell right back. 
Now, here's the thing. I didn't fill you in. I told my workers beforehand. I said, look, I'm going to do this illustration. So what I want you guys to do is I'm, as I'm walking farther away from Duke, as he can't, as he hears that, wait, he's getting farther away. I want you guys to just like ninjas sneak up underneath the platform. And I want you to hold out your hand. So when he falls back, you're going to catch him. And when he fell back, he didn't hesitate. He just fell back and they caught him. And he was surprised. And then they took off the blindfold. And we asked Duke, we said, Duke, did you just know that we were going to catch you? And he's like, I didn't have a doubt. And I was like, wow, the faith of a child, childlike faith. It's amazing. The older we get, we lose that, don't we? It doesn't take long for what we would call real life to set in before we no longer have that faith. It just takes one house payment to be missed before we start freaking out, right? It just takes one negative notice from the doctor before we start really beginning to worry. It just takes one argument between the spouse or someone in the relationship for us to get really nervous if this is going to make it. It just takes our teenager to experiment with some substance one time before we start freaking out. It takes just a little bit and all of a sudden our faith is shaken to its core. Maybe you've heard this. I've, I've been in ministry long enough where I've heard people that I've talked to that they have stopped attending church said, what happened? They said, well, I lost my faith. I said, you lost your faith? Well, where'd you leave it? Let's look for it. Maybe it's under here. Let's, you know, I, I don't know. Did you leave it somewhere under the couch with car keys? You know, check in between the cushions. You know, your faith will be there and who knows? You may have that five bucks and change that's under there too. Maybe you can find some leftover French fries. Those are still good. McDonald's, those never go bad. You can eat those. And years later, those are always good. Never expire. I wish our faith was like McDonald's French fries. Never expire. No expression date. I could preach that, but that'd just be crazy. So when it comes to faith, it's amazing. I hear people say, oh, I lost my faith. Oh, I left my faith. What they're really saying is my faith let me down, is what they're really saying. But what I want to say to you this morning is that what most of us call faith is just dressed up hope. It wasn't really faith. It was just hope. Because we'll say things like, well, if it's God's will, this will happen. You're putting a little caveat on God. You're putting something there that you're kind of hedging your bet. That's not faith. That's hope. But we're calling it faith. And then we're distraught when our faith lets us down. When really, if we were honest, we need to say that that's actually hope. I'm hoping this will happen. I'm hoping this will work out. Because I want to challenge us with faith because Jesus is going to speak to this thing and he's going to speak to us and help us to realize that when it comes to unbelief and when it comes to faith, many of us have this conflict between our faith and our feelings, don't we? You see, when, when we feel good, our faith is good. But that's not real faith. If our faith is dictated by our feelings, then it's up and down. That's why you come on Sundays and that's why you feel so great and so fired up on Sundays. But then on Monday... All of a sudden, we start living like the devil. Why? Because we were feeling it on Sunday. We didn't feel it on Monday. That's not real faith. That's not what God has called us to. And so this morning, I want to challenge us to do a little bit of work this morning because in Hebrews 3.12, it says, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You see, unbelief will turn us away from the living God. It'll lead us astray. And so... I've heard pastors erroneously say things like, it's okay if you're dealing with doubt. Really? I, it's actually not okay. Doubt is not a virtue. 
Doubt should not be a part of it. It, it, it. Jesus, whenever he saw doubt, he always chastised, always rebuked it. Doubting Thomas, Peter, doubting. Whenever somebody doubted, he didn't say, oh, it's okay, you're going to have a little doubt. But yet somehow we've let that creep into the church like, oh, everybody, a little bit of doubt's okay. That's like me saying, you know what, when I go out to eat and the, the waiter serves me my chicken, they say, you know what, it just has a little bit of E. coli. You're okay with a little bit, right? No, please take it back and cook it good. I want it right. I went through a surgery a couple months ago, and it's okay, you know, if the doctor before he puts me out says, hey, it's okay if I take out a couple extra parts, right? Like, that's okay, right? No, it's not. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, give me a Sharpie. Let's like draw arrows and circles on what exactly you're going to be cutting and what you're going to be doing. I don't want you to mistake anything, okay? There's no extra parts that we need to pull out, okay? Nothing like that. But yet when it comes to our faith, we kind of, eh, you know, it's okay if we don't, we don't have it all. And that's not the case at all. This is why it's so important we look at God's word. Here's what the Bible says. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, our faith comes from the word of God. Why do you think it's so important that we have God's word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God, Psalms 119. You see, this is why it's so important, church, when we, when we get into God's word and we let God's word get into us. It'll strengthen your faith. It'll renew your faith. It'll revive your faith. For some of you that said, I've lost my faith, it'll tell you where you left it. See, that's what God's word does. It's powerful, sharp, it's alive. And we want God's word in us and working through us so we can stop calling faith hope when really that's what it is. It's just a hope. You see, we have something greater than that, something stronger than that this morning. So let's look at Matthew or Mark chapter number nine. Notice verse 14, the Bible says this. When they returned to the other disciples, see Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the moment where Jesus was in his glorified form. And this is where Moses and the prophets, they appeared and Peter, James, and John, they're there. And then the voice of God is heard on top of that mountain. Jesus comes down where the other nine disciples are. And there's a ruckus. There's some commotion going on. In verse 14, they're coming down and they see a large crowd surrounding the other disciples. And some teachers of religion's law were arguing with the disciples. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son to you so you could heal him. Hold on just for a second. Where has Jesus been all night? On the mountain. Had he brought him to Jesus? No. Many times we think we bring stuff to Jesus. We've never brought it to Jesus. He hadn't brought it to Jesus yet. But he said, Oh, I brought him to you to heal him. And then he says, He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening, Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us, and help us if you can. I feel like verse 22 is where you and I live, if God can. That is not faith, is it? That is hope, if you can, if you'll give me this job, if you'll help me get married, if you'll save me from this disease, 
if you'll give me a new car. What is that? That's hope. That's hope. It's not faith. Let's stop calling our faith hope. Let's stop calling our hope faith. It's just dressed up. And we do it and we wonder why it wasn't strong enough. And then Jesus says something so powerful. Verse 23, what do you mean if I can? Now, if you ever watch any of the movies, it's always great, even though uh, Jesus is, a, is a, a Middle Eastern, he always has a British accent. So it sounds so much better when you hear it on the movies because he's always got a British accent. What meaneth thou if I can? I don't know how he'd say it. I have a horrible British accent. I don't know what I'm doing. But it just would sound so much more emphatic, right? So much more powerful. He says, what do you mean if I can? And that's where you and I live, where we wonder if God can. Jesus asked, is any, anything is possible if a person believes? Now I'd like you to do something if you have a copy of God's word. I want you to underline it. I want you to highlight and I want you to circle it in red. You say, why? Because many of us do not believe that verse. We don't. The church would be a radically different place. Your life would be a radically different life if you truly believe that anything is possible to the one who believes. Anything. You see, if we were to truly live that, that, that verse is almost too good to be true, right? It's almost like, hmm, the inner skeptic, the inner cynic, cynic comes out and is like, hmm, no, come on, that sounds too much like prosperity. Name it and claim it. No, too good to be true. Mm-mm. No, Jesus says, anything is possible to the person who believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit, that makes this boy unable to... No, no, let's do it in an English accent. Listen, thou foul spirit, that maketh the boy unable to hear and speak. No, I don't like it. Mm. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Never enter him again. Jesus, let's go back. He's frustrated with this, this whole situation. He comes down from the mountain, and then he says to the people, how long must I be with you, O faithless generation? And when I read it, I was deeply convicted. Because if Jesus was saying that to the disciples at that time, what would he say now if he stepped into the church of the 21st century? If he were to walk into our churches, some of our churches that are so dead, we can't even fill them, churches that have no life, they haven't seen the Holy Spirit in months or years, what would he say now? Because without faith, it is impossible to please God, correct? Let's work the scripture. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, correct? It's impossible. But yet now God is looking for those that have faith and he came down the mountain and he's, he's upset, he's frustrated, he says, Oh, how long must I be with this generation of faithless people? How long must I put up with you? Wow. Jesus is leveling heavy statements here. Let us feel the weight of this just for a moment. And then let's ask ourselves a question. Wow, Jesus, you're really frustrated by this. Like, why is this bothering you so much? Don't you understand? Everybody deals with doubt. Don't you understand? I'm just dust. Come on, Jesus, just let me off. But Jesus isn't letting him off, is he? Because the modern preaching says everybody deals with doubt, it's okay. No, 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 I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that because Jesus does not let us off when it comes to doubt. He doesn't. Because why? We look at an empty tomb and that should be faith enough. In two weeks, we're going to celebrate that he arose, that he conquered death and he triumphed over the grave. What more proof do you require to believe? You see, Jesus proved it all. 
He proved, but yet some of us are still yet unconvinced, as if he needs to do more, as if he needs to do a greater magic act. And so Jesus says, this faithless generation, I asked myself, why, Jesus, are you so frustrated? And then I came to the conclusion. And it's based in Mark chapter number six, verse number two. You see, what happened in Mark chapter number six, verse number two? Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends out all 12, and he gives them power, and specifically power to cast out demons. But yet here's a demon-possessed boy, and they couldn't cast him out. Here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew that their potential was greater than their problem. That's why he's frustrated. You see, Jesus knows this morning, your potential is greater than your problem. It is. Yet you and I, we get so overwhelmed and bombarded by our problems that it lets us, it keeps us from really moving where God wants us to move or doing what God wants us to do. You see, we said faith comes by hearing, okay? That initiates faith, okay? The word of God, when we hear it, that initiates faith, okay? But when we speak the word of God, that activates faith, okay? It's one thing to hear it on a Sunday morning, but when you start quoting the word of God, when you start firing back, you see, it was Jesus against the devil that he quoted scripture back to him. He didn't give arguments. He didn't give a discourse. He started to quote the truth back to him because that's what activates faith, okay? So you need to speak the truth back to the situation. Many of us are stuck in this faith that starts, it's initiated. And then we may get to the point where we've activated. But it's not enough. Faith is demonstrated when we do. That's where faith is demonstrated. You've initiated. Maybe you've activated. But are you demonstrating your faith? Where you do, you say, I'm going to step out in the water. I'm going to step out by faith. In two weeks, our church is going to step out and, and, and attempt something for God that is way bigger than us. But we believe that there are hundreds and thousands of people who do not know Jesus, who will spend eternity in a Christless hell. And so it's because of that motivation that we are compelled to share the gospel. We are compelled to share the good news, that we will do anything we can to help those who do not know Jesus. So we will sacrifice. We will give generously. We will serve. We will buy a bright, ugly blue t-shirt, and we will wear that bright, ugly blue t-shirt, and we will serve on that day. You say, why? Because we want to see lives transformed. We want to see lives changed, and that's what it's all about, but we can't because many of us are stuck, and we're looking at our problems, and Jesus is saying, oh, you faithless generation, I've given you the potential to overcome this. Any, anybody, you, you ever coached basketball, baseball, any sport? I don't know, air hockey, whatever. I don't know what sport you may have coached, but you've coached something. You ever had a player that had all kinds of potential, but zero discipline? You're just looking at this player and everybody else is doing their wind sprints. And man, you've got the one kid. There's always that one scrappy kid. He's too small, too slow, and just doesn't have the build for it, but he's out hustling everybody else. And he's got that drive and you're like, you don't have a, 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 like any athletic ability. None whatsoever. That was always me, okay? I was like, I don't have any ability. I'm the smallest, the tiniest, and I'm going to break easily, so be gentle with me. You know, it was one of those. But yet you have to give all heart. But then you've got the kid. They've got the size. They've got the moves. They've got everything that's required, but yet they have no discipline. So everybody else is running wind splints. They're just going based on their talent. Oh, I'm good enough. I don't need to work hard. I just, I just do. I feel like there's a lot of Christians like that. <laughs> Prayer? I don't need that. <laughs> Reading God's word? Nah. I went to Sunday school. You should see my sticker charts. I still have them. They're not working. 
No, they're living off the past, and they're not saying, hey, I'm going to grow in this thing. They got all the potential, and guess what? This morning, Jesus is looking at each and every one of you. He's saying, guess what? You have the same potential as the person next to you. You have the same potential as the person speaking to you. You have the same potential as your spouse. You have the same potential as your husband. You have the same potential as the disciples. You have the exact same Holy Spirit inside of you that they did. So why no miracles? Why no difference? Why is it? That people outside of the church are looking at people that are inside the church and saying, oh, we're the same. Your life is not very redeemed. I, I'm going to say some things that will probably bother you. Now, in an effort for us to be relevant, we've compromised some things. In an effort to be relevant. Because we want to fit in. We want to be cool. In an effort to be relevant, we should change that word to compromise. We've compromised some things we have never should have compromised on. And the disciples did it too. They should have been able to cast out this demon. They should have been able to. Jesus had given the power. And yet you and I, we wonder what's happening. We're giving away ground that we should hold. There's some things we let slide. There's some things we let change. We never should have let slide and never let change. And there's some things, and it comes with back to God's word. And here's what it is. This little phrase, I'm just living my truth, man. You ever heard that? You ever tweeted it? You ever put it on your Instagram account? Ever Snapchat that? Oh, just living my truth. You see, this father was not living in reality. He was living in his own story. You say, what do you mean? He was living his truth. What was his truth? His truth. And when people are saying their truth, they're saying the truth to me is based on my past and my experiences. So this is what informs the truth. We're in a generation now that what informs the truth is their past experiences, which means that changes. That, that's a dangerous place to be if we let our experience inform the truth. No, no, we have the truth. God's word is truth. He is truth. We have it. We don't have to go looking for it. But yet we have a culture and a generation now that's saying, I just got to live my truth. I just got to, you know, I'm just living my truth, you know, and, uh, you know, it's all good. But here's the thing. The father was living his truth. What was his truth? If you can heal him. That was his truth. Why? The disciples failed him. And Let's cut this disciples some slack. In that day and age, this would have been a very difficult miracle. As you look at the boy, he is dealing with a couple different issues. You say two issues. First of all, he is demon-possessed. Second of all, he's also dealing with the disease. You say, what disease is he dealing with? Everything he's dealing with is seizures. This is a physical malady that this young boy has. You've probably seen it. We had a, at our wedding, we had a, 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 one of the musicians my wife found had Tourette syndrome. And, and, and when my wife first told me she found a musician that has Tourette's, I said, I said, babe, um, um, and, he, and he plays the harp. I was like, babe, uh, where'd you find this guy? Like, I didn't mean to be critical or anything. I just said, he's a harp player that has Tourette's, and he had horrible Tourette's. Like, when you would talk to him, you couldn't get through a sentence without him twitching, without, he just, horrible. But something amazing happened. The moment you put an instrument in his hands, he was a different person. He was a totally different person. The moment he started playing, it was like he was, there was nothing wrong. I was like, this is amazing. So this young man, he has some diseases. He has some issues that, that he is foaming. He's getting seizures. He's getting all these, all these issues. So he's got double the problem. But here in that day and age, it was very difficult to cast out a demon, to work an exorcism. You see why? You needed to be able to name the demon if you were going to exercise him. You needed to have its name. Popular culture still does it. If you watch some of those horror movies, I hate horror movies. I don't know why you like horror movies. Can I give you a little bit of insight? Uh, every generation had a different genre of horror movies. Some of you grew up in the day where the nuclear bomb was all the horror movies had to do with bombings. So you do bomb skills. Some of you grew up in the day where everybody was afraid of children. 
You say, no, 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 we weren't. No, 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 The Omen, uh uh-huh, Children of the Corn. All horror movies were about babies and kids. And guess what? In 1975 was the lowest birth rate in our entire nation because the horror movies weren't, people were afraid of their own kids. It's crazy, right? Horror movies tell a culture what we're afraid of. What are horror movies about today? Jordan Peele, let it influence you. His newest movie, Us, it's about duality. We're afraid of ourselves. The person you're most afraid of is yourself. You're most afraid of becoming who God's actually called you to become. So you'll sell yourself short. You're like this father. You have the potential, but, but, oh, but what if I fail? My son, he was doing so good. He had a piano recital yesterday. Man, he, he had this piece memorized. Most people didn't memorize, but he had it memorized. And he got up to the stage, and he was so confident. And he wasn't arrogant, but he was just confident. He had practiced really hard. And then the mic, he's, he's like me. He's not tall, okay? Cut us a break. We're vertically challenged. Leave us alone, people. We just want to ride the rides at Disneyland, but we're not tall enough. We're stuffing our shoes. We're trying to do stuff to get us tall. And, uh, you know, so, so the microphone's too tall to him. So he grabs the microphone, and it falls off, and he gets embarrassed because everybody laughs. And then he sat down to play the piano, and it didn't go like he wanted to, and he held his head because he was so afraid that he would fail. And because he was afraid of failing, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy and he failed. And some of you are so afraid of failing at your marriage that you're setting your marriage up to fail because it's all you can see is I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna fail. And guess what? You fail. Oh, I'm so afraid I'm not gonna make this business. It's not gonna work, it's not gonna work. And guess what? It didn't work. And then you're like, oh, good. I was right the whole time. So yeah, this didn't work, but at least I was right. And there's his father, he's hedging his bets. God, if you can, but guess what? My truth is that you can't. And Jesus is saying, excuse me, I am the son of the living God. All things are possible to anyone who believes. And so Jesus steps back and says, wait a minute, those disciples, those, they can't do it. But guess what? You were talking to the pre-incarnate. You were talking to God right now. You were talking to Jesus. That's who you're talking to right now. Remember who you're talking to. So you and I, we can keep living in our truth and we're going to keep settling ourselves short. But here's what's so powerful, what I love about this passage. The man makes a confession. He says, guess what? God, I believe. Help my unbelief. What reminds me, and I love this part so much, because if you're the person that's saying, hey, I'm putting my faith and trust in my truth, guess what? You can have strong faith in a weak source and nothing's going to happen. And some of us have a lot of faith in the wrong source. That's why your marriage failed you. Today we, and I'm going to talk about this after Easter, we're going to do a family series. Today we've replaced God with our children. Just look at culture. We've replaced God with our children. Our children are now our new God. That's just what culture has done. It's, It's everywhere. People will do anything, sacrifice anything for our children. And children are very important. We need to protect the lives of our children. Whenever sin and corruption rise up, the first ones to be attacked are children in innocence. That's the first ones. We should protect them. But that's what culture has done. And so here's this father just saying, oh, I'm gonna, i gotta, I got to protect my son, and, and rightly so. But yet now we have this father who's put his strong faith, and sometimes we have strong faith, but it's in the wrong source. And because we have the wrong source, nothing happens. But this father finally gets it. He finally says, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me overcome it. And then Jesus does the miracle. Because a strong faith in the wrong source does nothing, but a small faith in the right source can do anything. 
And some of us are so long, we've grown up in the church and we've heard big faith, big faith, big faith, big faith, big faith. And some of you, you don't have a mustard seed faith. You got an avocado seed faith. I mean, that thing's ginormous. That thing is huge. That puppy, man, it is massive. Put it in a little Dixie cup and put water on it and watch that sucker grow. I mean, it's your kid's science experiment. It's so big, right? And some of you are just like, man, my faith's not big enough. No wonder nothing's happening. No, it's not the size of your faith. It's the source of where you put it. You see, some of you want deeper faith, but it's not about having deeper faith. It's the direction of your faith. Jesus said something very powerful. He said, bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. Don't take him to anybody else. Bring the boy to me. I can fix this. Some of us, we think we have brought our problems to Jesus, but we haven't. We may have brought it to church, and then we told everybody. We told an usher. We told our friend. We told our life group. We told our friends, and we told our family, but we actually haven't brought it to Jesus. Some of us, we will bother everybody but God. We won't bring it to him. And Jesus is saying, no, no, bring this problem to me. But it all goes back to our belief system. You say, what do you mean? Our faulty belief system. I say it like this. It's a lot of BS, a belief system. And if that offends you, I apologize. But some of you do have a lot of BS, your belief system. It's so faulty because it's not rooted in who Jesus is, and who God is. And this morning, he's challenging us that we have to have hearts filled with belief, not hope, but we can have hearts rooted in faith because even weak faith can produce more than it promises. So this father, he got honest, and God does incredible things. And I love it because Jesus, he heals the boy. And then at the end of verse number 25, Jesus says this. He says, I command you, demon, to come out of this child and never enter him again. Here's what's so amazing. Jesus posted no trespassing zone around that boy's life. He said, this boy is mine. The devil cannot get to him. He cannot get to him. I put a no trespassing sign over this boy's life. When I grew up, I used to deliver paper routes. And when I deliver paper routes early in the morning, I would see these do not trespass signs, but I had to get the paper up there. And you would trespass over and they would have a big, mean dog. And all of a sudden the dog would chase you away. So you had to get the paper over there. And here's what God is saying. Guess what? My spirit is there. The enemy can't get to you. John 10, 28 says that in my father's hand, I put them in my father's hand and no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. God is saying, you are safe in the hands of Jesus this morning. You don't need to worry about it anymore. You don't need to get frustrated anymore. So you can do what we said last week. You can worship instead of worry. You can say, God, I'm going to give you worship and I'm going to give you praise this morning because you put a no trespassing sign around my life and the enemy can't get to me anymore. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I'm going to keep marching on. When are we going to have a church that rises up full of faith, with full hearts, with eyes that are on Jesus? Say, guess what? I'm not afraid of anything. Why? Because I'm now fearless. I'm fearless because God is with me. He is in me, and he is for me. Calvary proves that Jesus is for me. But the disciples, they came to Jesus after this marvelous miracle. And they said, Jesus, Jesus, come here, come here. Jesus, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus gathers them around and says, okay, come close. This kind, what just happened, it happened because of prayer. I was able to do this because of prayer. 
Many of us are looking for the secret sauce. What's the secret sauce for staying married? What's the secret sauce for raising kids? What's the secret sauce for having a joyful Christian life? What's the secret sauce to doing my devotions? Here's the secret sauce. Do it. Just do it. Do your devotions. Just go pray. Just go love your wife. Just go love your kids. Many times we don't want to. Truth be told. We want a different way, don't we? God, there's got to be another way where I can do miracles. God, there's got to be another way where I can, I can be seen by these crowds and they can marvel at my faith. But God, I don't want to do that. There's a quote I read this week and it fits perfectly. Every result that you desire is always preceded by a process required. The next time you see a person that's physically strong and you see biceps and triceps and quads and calves and other muscles, I don't know, that are just big and they got muscles on muscles, understand that they didn't just wake up like that. They didn't just go and eat a bunch of donuts to get that body. There was a process required. You see a parent that has some great kids, there was a process. They didn't just hire out a nanny and say, all right, nanny, this is what I want. They didn't just call up the student pastor at their church and say, hey, here's what I want. No, there's a process. You see somebody with a marriage that's working, guess what? They went through a process. You see a Christian who's walking through a trial and difficulty, and you say, how are they staying faithful to God? How are they having a sweet spirit? How are they not giving into bitterness? There was a process there. And many times Christians hate process. We just want perfection. And there's only perfection on the other side of heaven. Right now we walk in process. Right now it's day in and day out. Right now it's just being faithful. Right now it's just saying, God help me each and every day. And God says, I will but we want a different way we want a different process you know Jesus before he went to the tomb or before he went to the cross he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he said to Jesus Jesus said to God God if there's any other way let this cup pass from me if there's if there's any other way and I never fully understood stood that passage until I became a parent because I'm a weird parent. You say, why, what do you mean? I don't like to share the glass that I'm drinking out of with anybody else in my family, wife included. The wife has cooties. I don't want them cooties. If we get a milkshake and we're gonna share it, I get two straws. Why, I'm weird. I don't want the lipstick infecting my milkshake. No, I don't want that. You get your own straw or you get your own cup. I'll pour it in. I'm just weird. I'm weird, y'all. And then it's worse when you get little kids because I can have a clean glass of water and I can hand it to my two-year-old cane. He can pick it up. He can drink it. And he puts it down. And now what was a clean glass of water has now three days of penicillin floating in it. And I don't know how that happens. And all of a sudden, then they look at you. And daddy want to drink? No, daddy does not want. Satan, get behind me. I rebuke you. Oh, my goodness. I'm not drinking after that. No. It's gross, and they hold it up, and then you got to do one of these little parent things. You know how you do. You know how you do. You're like, mmm, that's good. Mm, daddy loves it, you know. You parents are lying. You lie to your children. You know you lie to them. You know you do. You know you lie to your kids. But then you take that cup. And you're like, I can't believe I'm going to do this. And you take a little sip, and you're like, yep, that's as gross as it could be. Now, moms, on the other hand, they're like, ain't nobody got time for this. I'm thirsty. Cool. They take it like a shot and a champ. Man, they'd keep trucking because moms can handle it. God built you stronger than that. Us dads are like, no, you can't, you, we can't do it. But God gave mamas the gifts. I don't know what it is. They can handle that kind of stuff. There is a grace and a supernatural enabling on your life. 
I've walked in some homes when we, my wife and I would pick up kids from the bus, we'd go into some neighborhoods, pretty rough. Homes are pretty messy. Flip on the lights and all the cockroaches would scurry off. You know, the kids, when they get dressed for church, they're just grabbing clothes, just putting it on. You walk into those homes and then they wanna offer you something to drink. So there's a sink, you see that sink and you're like, oh my goodness, Chernobyl has cleaner sinks than that. And then they get a cup out of there and they swirl it around with some water. They open up the fridge and then they go get some orange soda. They take over that orange soda they poured in that glass. And it was orange soda and it came out purple. You know, like I saw it going orange. This is, a, this is definitely not a water and a wine situation. It's just the cup is that dirty. And they're looking at you to drink it. You see, when Jesus said, Father, if there be any other way, he was talking about the cup of sin. He's talked about all the filth of this world. He was saying, God, there's a cup. It's all the malice. It's all the anger. It's all the hatred. It's all the jealousy. It's all the greed. It's all the corruption. It's all the awful things of this. It's all the war. It's all the molested children. God, it's the rape. It's the murder. It's the crime. It's all in this cup. Let it pass for me. Nevertheless, And as Jesus was nailed on the cross, he says one of the seven sayings. Do you remember it? I thirst. Many scholars debate what he was talking about. Some people say he's thirsty. He's on the cross. It's, it's, it's the middle of the day and it's hot. And then it says a Roman soldier took a sponge and dipped it in vinegar and they gave him a drink. And some people say, well, vinegar, you know, it, it had like, it was a poor man's wine is what it was. So it kind of numbed the pain for him. tour guide said it was standard issue with every Roman soldier that they were given a sponge and some vinegar because when you were out on the battlefield and you needed to relieve yourself there was no two-ply no Downey no Kirkland you had that sponge and you would wash yourself with that sponge and you would take that vinegar as an antiseptic I grew up in a house where we were poor. We didn't buy Windex. We used apple cider vinegar to wipe the windows because it'll clean the windows. And they poured that vinegar on that sponge to cleanse it from where somebody had defecated on it. I stuck a spear and stuck it up to Jesus' mouth. You're thirsty? Drink this. All of that, Jesus said, I thirst. He said, I'll take it all. And yet God says to you and I, can you pray? You want this? And then pray for it. And we have a hard time doing that. And we wonder why the church is so spiritually anemic nowadays. That Christians are so spiritually anemic. We're easily criticized because we don't really know anything about what we say we believe. And yet Jesus was willing to say, I'll drink it all. I'll take all that sin. I'll go through the process, the process. And God is saying, hey, there's a result desired. There's a process required. Will you go through the process? Will you let God do the work he wants to do? 
Will you let him help you overcome your unbelief because God is calling you to more because God looks down over the thrones of heaven and he sees you and he's saying, my child, I have so much I want to do through you. There's so much I have for you. Your potential is far greater than any problem you're going to face. So this morning, will you say, God, yeah, I don't believe like I should, but I'm like that dad. I'm going to admit my unbelief, and God help me with it. And I'm going to seek your process to get to know you. And you will find that as you seek him, James says, those that seek me shall find me. If you are seeking for God, you'll find him. We hope you were encouraged by today's message from Pastor Micaiah. If it was a blessing to you, don't forget to share it with a friend or family member this week. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Get in touch with us by visiting SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect. Again, that's SouthridgeSanJose.com slash connect.